Several years ago on Mother's Day, I decided to drive three and a half hours to my hometown of Wabash, Indiana, where my parents still live, to spend Mother's Day with my mom, right? It's a sentimental day. It's like, you know what? I just want to see my mom. And so it's worth three and a half hours there, three and a half hours back and show up, have fun with, with her. And, and, and then I'd have to come back home, obviously, because get back here by Monday. So it was on a Sunday evening, and there's multiple ways to get from Wabash, Indiana, back to the Cincinnati area. I decided to go kind of the back way where there's more country roads, and there was a car in front of me. I don't know what town it was. You know, we're coming up on a small town, but we're in the middle of nowhere. The car in front of me was going slower, you know, than I really wanted to go. Maybe you've been in this situation before. And so I decided to pass the car in front of me. Now, this is a full disclosure story, heads up. Uh, there, was, there wasn't a double yellow, right? Totally legal. And so I decided to pass this person. Well, let me be clear. They initiated the passive-aggressive nature of what was about to take place. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all love how I try to justify my actions the best that I can, and they're not believable at all. And so this person, when I started to pass them, they decided they didn't want me to pass them, so they sped up. All right, I'll see your passive aggressiveness and I'll go ahead and match you with some more passive aggressiveness. <laughs> I decided I was still going to pass them, but by the time I passed this person, full disclosure, it was a double yellow line. All right? And so after I passed them, I was like, I just you know, kind of assume it's a teenager, right? Somebody that's mad, and, you, know, you know, I don't know what they're thinking. But this person, after I passed them, they stuck right behind me. And so I could see in my rearview mirror that it was a lady probably around the age of 50, if I were to guess. I'm like, oh, great. I've really made her mad. wonder how long she's going to follow me. And uh, we come up on, a, on, on the small town where we're forced to slow down. And then I realized why it is that she was following so closely behind me the entire time. She called the police. <laughs> yeah. Now, you know these small towns, right? Everybody probably knows everybody. She's probably a former police officer. She, hey, you know, I got another guy, you know, when you track him down kind of thing. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. And so she obviously, you know, she's hanging back. And I see her having a conversation with the police officer. And it's like, well, like, apparently they know each other. Probably going to get coffee or lunch after this conversation is going. And this is not good for me. And, but I'm like, man, really? Is this, is this actually happening? So the police officer comes up and I get a ticket. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad you have some empathy there. I get a ticket, <laughs> full-on citizen's arrest is happening here. I'm like, this is, this is real life, and, and so that's kind of how I put it together. He was, you know, telling me the scenario and asking me if this happened. Well, I'm not going to lie to him, even though I know he wasn't there to witness it, and this is how it all went down. And, and so I, I drive off, and, and here's the point of the story, because I vividly remember having this specific thought after he gave me a ticket, and, and I drove off. Yes, I paid the ticket, and they know that out-of-towners are, you know, the least likely to pay a ticket, so they probably thought they could get away with it, even though I could have, but you're probably wondering that. And so I just drove off. And here, you know, obviously I'm bitter, I'm upset. How did this happen? And here was my exact thought. I said, thinking about that woman, I bet she's just mad because her son didn't come home on Mother's Day to see her. <laughs> I, I vividly thought that, and I've thought back to the reality of that statement and that perception of her ever since then. And so here's, here's why it's convicted me. Here's why that moment, that thought has stuck with me over all these years, because it's amazing to me how easy it is to kind of demonize the people in our lives that are intrusion in our lives right, that bring ill will upon us when we don't know them. I don't know about you, like, my worst self comes out, if I'm being totally honest, when I'm driving. Like, it's easy just to assume the worst about people. If they don't use their turning signal, they cut somebody off, they're driving recklessly, I'm like, that's the worst person in the world. They're selfish, they don't care, wherever they're going is not as important as where I'm going, if they only knew. It's easy because I don't know that person. 
Now, and so, you know, what I try to do is kind of try to imagine my 92-year-old grandma, right, if I'm really trying to lock myself into better spiritual behavior while driving, because I've been in that circumstance. Maybe you have too. They're driving the left lane, like, come on, don't you know how the rules work? Then you pass on the right, and they're like, you realize they're a 120-year-old couple, and you feel bad, right? It's like, oh, man, wake up to the reality. But here, here's the consequence of the, this mindset in our lives. When it comes to the way in which we view people around us that maybe bring ill will into our lives when we don't know them, I think oftentimes we're inclined to live our lives in such a way where we want to create a bubble, we want to insulate our lives, where we deliberately choose to surround ourselves with people who act like us, think like us, have the same philosophies in life, people that aren't going to kind of make waves because those relationships are just too complicated. And so then it just becomes kind of predictable and mundane and going through the motions. And so we make it our, our goal, we don't say this out loud, to arrive kind of safely at death, looking back at our lives. We're like, well, all right, that was nice. And, and went, my, it was a pretty smooth ride through life. And everybody was likable and nice. And didn't, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of conflict in my life. And there was, there's an author, Ronald Rohheiser. He has some unique perspective. When we kind of lock ourselves into just kind of going through the motions of life, trying to, you know, run in our lane, so to speak, and like, you go do your life over there because you're different than me, and so there's, I don't want there to be any intersection or friction in our life. Here's what he says. He says, in Western culture, the joyous shouting of children often irritates us because it interferes with our depression. <laughs> Pretty bold, isn't it? <laughs> He says, that is why we have invented a term, hyperactivity, so that we can, in good conscience, sedate the spontaneous joy in many of our children. <laughs> that may be true to whatever extreme you want to take it, but that's the reality. It's like, don't rock my boat of life with your chaos. Don't, you keep your chaos over there, right? Because my life is fine, because it's safe, it's predictable. And I am surrounded with other people that we don't even, we don't ever have conflict because we, we always agree with everything, right? It's a small vision for life. There's consequences to that when our ultimate aim is to merely keep the peace in our lives where all is calm, all is, I know what's coming. This is a problem. There's consequence to living that way. It's a small vision. Here it is. It's because there's a difference between being a peacekeeper and being a peacemaker. Being a peacekeeper is easy. Being a peacemaker, which is what God calls us to, will always be inconvenient. It's a, large, it's a big challenge. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. It says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. This is very interesting, right? Easy to understand, difficult to, to execute in everyday life. Who's, who's blessed? The peacemakers. And those are the ones who will be called children of God. And so I think of God, who is our Father, looking down at us and our actions and what makes him most proud. It's when we bring peace, when we decide to be intentional about making peace in our relationships. You know, so I think about my dad when I was growing up playing sports, and whether I won or whether I lost, what he cared about most is whether or not I worked hard, whether I put forth my best effort. I said, son, I'm proud of you. And so I want to live my life worthy of a father up in heaven. I want to live a blessed life, and according to him, it's to be a peacemaker in the world where he has me, in the circumstances that he has me in. So think about this. If our identity is found in the fact that we belong to God, then the way we declare that identity is to be promoters of the peace of God. Where is my identity? Where is my significance? It's not in my accomplishments, my achievement. I find my, the fullness of my purpose in the fact that I belong to God. I'm with Him. 
I live for him to be proud of me. And so I'm gonna promote the peace that he offers. We can make peace because we belong to the one who is peace. We don't have to do this on our own, it's good news. But again, too often we settle for merely keeping the peace. We keep our distance from those we disagree with, don't get along with, those we don't even like at all. Like, I'll be fine if I never see that person, interact with that person in my life, right? We've had those relationships. But the, the small vision of peacekeeping is that we decide to make life, the world that we live in, ultimately about us. It's selfish. It's passive. Everybody else that I encounter is just a sub-character in a story ultimately about me, right? And so we live our lives driving forward. I'm the main character and everybody else is participating in my story. That's small vision for life because peacekeepers just avoid conflict. They, they see everything as an intrusion, an interruption in their agenda. So not rocking the boat becomes the fullness of peace. Everything's just fine. Everything's smooth. Get along with everybody. However, mere peacekeeping offers no restoration, which is God's ideal. Hey, parents, you get this when your kids are growing up, right, and you're trying to navigate sibling relationships and they're not getting along. If, you're, if the fullness of your goal was peacekeeping, then you would simply say, don't touch each other, go to your corners, nobody's playing with each other, right? You do your thing, you do your thing. And some days you have to resort to that and that's success. But ultimately, to be a peacemaker in that moment is you tell your, your two kids, brothers, brother, sister, right? I live this, parent says, find a way to work it out. There's only one toy, you both wanna play with it, share the toy, learn how to play with each other. That's not fun, that's not easy, it's never convenient, but they have to work it out. They have to figure out how to make peace, bringing peace to the relationship. So when we say peace, what do we mean specifically? Well, let me be clear, peace is not the absence of conflict. It's not just everybody getting along, deciding not to disrupt each other's agendas, right? Making waves. Peace is not the absence of conflict. Instead, peace is the presence of right relationship. This is the true task that we're about to do. Ephesians chapter four, verses two and three. It says, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. High task, isn't it? What's the motivation? Here it is, the very next verse. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Now this is an interesting conversation you know, because it's not always motivating the world that we live in. Because these characteristics that God has called us to and is shaping us as we depend on the spirit, the fruits of the spirit would by you know, world standards considered to be soft, right? See, if I'm to be a peacemaker, then what will mark my life is humility, gentleness, patience, love. Those are difficult, right? And those are soft characteristics, but they are at our core how we bring peace to the world around us. So peacemakers, well, let me break this down. If we're going to be peacemakers, peacemakers decide to enter into conflict where all is not right, all is not calm, so to speak, having a bigger vision of what can happen in the conflict. Peacemakers enter into conflict humbly with the goal of doing whatever is necessary to restore and unite. How? Through the means of grace. We lead with the grace that we have been shown ourselves. Now, Romans chapter 12, we could spend the entire morning in this. I encourage you to get out your study Bibles and dig deeper into this this week because this is loaded. These six verses, if you were to make this your vision uh, for your life every single day, it's a pretty good result. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. What does that look like? It goes on to say, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position, 
Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Can you imagine that? Verse 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Like, oh man, that's that moment. Like, come on, everyone. Like, I was hoping everybody but that one guy, that one neighbor, one coworker. Like, I'm doing pretty good. Like, 99.9% rate, God. Like, everyone, like, it seems a little bit extreme. We all have our reasons, right? Every single one of us, we have, you know, we can, we've justified, like, oh, no, arm's length, we can keep them away for the rest of my life, I'm good. Verse 19, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. Some of you just woke up, you're like, all right, now we're talking. I'm at odds with somebody. God's wrath is interceding, but notice this is interesting. For it is written, goes on to say, it is mine to revenge. That's what God says. It is mine to avenge. He says, I will repay. On the contrary, here we go. It gets more challenging. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Can you imagine? Like maybe you're at odds with somebody. There is somebody in your life that you would consider to be your enemy. You go knock on your door, on their door. It might be your neighbor, it might be your coworker, it might be someone in your family, right? And you've just had some conflict and you drop off city barbecue. They're like, what? Come on now. That don't make any sense. Like there's no reason why you should be bringing me food, right? This way, you know, because you, you should be taking vengeance. You shouldn't be giving me gifts. It goes on to say, if he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. And you're like, hold on. What? Nobody uses this phrase in everyday life, so what does this mean in context? It doesn't mean literally heaping coals onto their head. That sounds brutal and miserable, and that looks like vengeance. But what this means in the context of Scripture is you're putting them in a position of being ultimately humble because you're doing the exact opposite of what people are supposed to do, seeking revenge. If you've been wrong, you wrong them back, an eye for an eye. Jesus says you actually do the opposite. It's not, see, the fullness of, of peacemaking is not just responding with nothing and going your own way, right? That's pacifism. It's actually responding to the point where you're loving them in a more intentional way than you would have if there hadn't been any conflict. The ways of following Jesus sound crazy. They sound radical, but this is what he's called us to. Last verse, verse 21, says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we're not I mean, it's, right? We can be in our holy huddles, in our bubbles as Christ followers, like, wow, the world is just going to pot. Everybody just stay inside, right? Just play it safe. Don't go out there. <laughs> and Jesus says, no, we go into the world representing the person of Jesus Christ to be peacemakers. We overcome the evil that we see with good. I love the action words that we see in that section of Scripture. Proactive words. Feed. Give. Overcome evil with good. See, to make peace is to lead with love. That I'm going to decide, no matter the disruption that has taken place in a specific relationship, I am going to lead with love. So sometimes in our ambitious vision of there being peace on earth, right? We watch the news, we hear about all that's wrong in the world, we're like, man, so much is broken, so much needs to be done, I hope that there is one day peace on earth. And sometimes we start too big and we miss out on the ordinary opportunity right in front of us. For there to be peace in the moment with the person right in front of us, in our home, in our neighborhood, in our church, our schools. See, it's in these moments that we are individually cultivating peace. And we're bringing peace. We're making peace with the one in front of us in the moment. And that peace that is required for us to, if we're all doing that, to collectively bring peace on earth. 
So what does leading with love really look like? So this is that moment where if you haven't already done that hard work, unfortunately, necessary work of getting that person or those people in mind, right? You're like, oh man, I just want to come to church, you know, get encouraged, right? Everything's good. Now it's self-examination time. Yes, the, the, this is that message, right? And this isn't fun, right? And so you, get, you have that person in mind and a lot of times it's that much more difficult when it's family, there's deep roots, you go way back and maybe you have a long list, right? And so you're like, okay, this has kind of been a perpetual habit in my life of writing people off who are different than me and, and it's constant disruption and I'm breaking down the relationship because of my pride and you know all the reasons. But this is the moment where we need to get those people or that person in our mind and we need to decide, God, I'm open to following you so that I can make peace in this relationship. And it might be, person you have animosity towards. You might even say that you've, at one point you've hated them, Purpose, person you're in deepest conflict with. What does it look like to lead with love? I think it begins with one specific question. And it's a question that we need to be asking. And it's a question that overcomes the instinctive response to someone wronging us and we don't know them. So it's easy to judge them, to blame them, to really write them off, right? In my case, the driving scenario, and it plays out in multiple other avenues where it's easy to hate someone when you don't know them, right? Or to look at them a negative way when you don't know them at all. They're a stranger. And the necessary question I think we all need to be asking is, what is your story? What is your story? Are we making the effort? Have we made the effort to get to beneath the surface of the circumstance? of their actions. Someone once said, you've probably heard this quote before, be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. And so our aim, you know, in the midst of, of conflict, in the midst of desiring peace, is to find out the why behind the action. And oftentimes, there's, there's so many layers to be peeled off that go back to family dynamics and other experiences that people have had in life. And, and what happens when you ask what is your story is you begin to connect yourself. Wow. This person has been on a journey, and much of their journey has been a battle. And now I know why we have dissension or conflict in our relationship. It's an overflow of what's happened before they even came into a relationship with me. Now, some of you, maybe the person that came to your mind was your spouse, and so that might be an awkward question. Hey, wife, what is your, what is your story? First of all, if you go home and say wife, that might be a weird dynamic anyway. I've never said that. Because, you know, you should know their story, and so we'll get to that here in a second. But here's the reality. Story should always come before assumption and judgment. Story should always come before assumption and judgment. That's why I try really, really hard when I'm driving and someone, you know, is not driving how I think they should drive. I try to imagine my 92-year-old grandma so that I can practice some mercy because I will never know their story. But story preceding assumption and judgment, the reason for that is because peacemaking always personalizes. Peacemaking always personalizes. It's always about the person, not about the situation. It's always easier to be mad at someone you don't really know. Peacemaking will always require empathy. The effort to enter into another's world to see what they see, to feel what they feel. So when you ask the question, what is your story? And you take the time to find out their journey through life and whether they're open to that or not, you're doing the best that you can to find out the why behind their action. It's an effort to practice empathy. Think about practically people who have never had a baby, right? A crying baby before of their own. Uh, have limited capacity to experience empathy when they're around other parents, you know, or another, a, a parent who has a crying baby. I think about this often like on airplanes or somewhere where it's like closed quarters, 
Right? Nobody wants to sit next to the parent that's holding the baby. And the baby starts to cry. So think about the difference between peacekeeping and peacemaking. Peacekeeping would be a teenager sitting close to a parent holding a crying baby, and the baby's crying. And this teenager actually makes contact with the parent, and they kind of give them a glare and make sure that they see him putting on their headphones and turning up the volume. Peacekeeping is selfish. Peacekeeping is about, hey, keep your chaos over there. Peacemaking, on the other hand, is a parent who has gone through that stage of life, making eye contact with the parent holding the crying baby and a smile that communicates, I understand. I get it. You hate this as well. You want your baby to stop crying. And it's okay. It's okay. It's an empathy, shared experience, communicating, I've been there. Peacemaking draws you in. See, while peacekeeping merely hopes for the best, peacemakers take action and lead with love. This is played out on a smaller scale uh, right now and during Serve Week. And so this is the vision that Jenny and her team have cast, you know, as far as people that are taking part in projects, because it's so easy, easy for us to be task-oriented. Just go in, get it done as fast as you can, right? Mission accomplished, how many projects can we do? But true peace requires a connection between people. So what is happening this week is not task-based, but instead driven by a love for people. Let me be clear, to meet a need without meeting a person is missing the point. To meet a need without meeting the person, connecting with them in some capacity, is missing the point of, of Serve Week. These acts of service are really gifts of peace. Small reminders of the fact that we are in this thing called life together. And together we will get through it, picking each other up when there is need. So we enter into people's lives, and it's humbling for them. It's, why, you wanna do this for me in my yard, in my facility? Right? Down in Covington and passing out meals. And, you know, yesterday, you know, also in Covington, that was Isaiah House. And then, you know, serving the homeless. It can be a humbling thing. It's like, wow, you've prepared food. You've brought food. You're entering into conversation to relationship. And we're finding complete joy in this. But really, it's, we're just intersecting our life stories and communicating. We're in this thing called life together. And there will come a day where I'm in a position where I have a need and someone else meets that need. But at this point, we're in the position where we get to serve. But one day, we're going to be humbled because someone serves us, and they enter into our lives, no strings attached, where we get to be gifts of grace and peace in each other's lives. Now, during Serve Week, we're probably serving people who haven't wronged us in any way, I'm assuming, people that should be easy to love. But what about the people in our lives who have brought conflict or even hate, our so-called enemies? Pretty strong word. Consider somebody your enemy. The question then becomes, the people, the person that you have in your mind right now, are you looking to initiate peace? See, what will determine our motivation for reconciliation is the priority we place on relationship. I have to decide what's more important, being right or right relationship. And that's the crazy thing about conflict. Some of your conflict goes back decades, and it just escalates without anything happening. It gets worse because over time, time kind of multiplies the hurt, the dissension. Might have been born out of one singular conversation. Nobody's decided to initiate peace because both people think that they're right. And we hold on to being right. It's called pride. We put being right above, we prioritize that above right relationship. It plays out in, in marriage all of the time, right? I, I talk about this whenever I do a, a wedding ceremony and I do premarital counseling and I encourage a couple, you know, you're going to have... You're, there's going to be conflict, right? If there's no conflict, it means somebody's lying, right? You've got to be honest in, in relationships. So people are like, ah, oh, we, we never fight. Like, well, somebody's a liar, right? Because you're two different people 
entering into a relationship where honesty is essential, and when two people are honest with themselves, there's going to be disagreement and there's going to be conflict. And so what do you do in navigating that conflict? It's amazing to me, you know, and Emily and I have a great relationship, but sometimes it can be difficult, more difficult than I think it should be to say, I'm sorry, two simple words. Because I'm so stuck on the fact, no, I'm right, I need you to see from my perspective, this is what we need to do. And then later on, realizing that maybe there's been hurtful words said to come back, right? And again, it seems like the more time that is spent holding on to that, the harder it is to say, I'm sorry. But as soon as somebody says, I'm sorry, it, it breaks down kind of this invisible barrier that was between two people and it draws each other in. And the reality is when somebody says, I'm sorry in a marriage relationship, the other person's like, oh man, I should have been the first to say it. <laughs> you ever been there? Because you realize, yeah, I was more wrong than, there, than they were, you know, in fact, it was totally my fault, but why would they initiate, I'm sorry? Because they care more about the relationship than being right. So simply saying, I'm sorry, taking responsibility, even if it was a very small or, you know, not, non-existent role in contributing to the dissension, you're communicating, I want things to be right. I want to restore this relationship to the length that I will go to whatever's necessary to do that. I don't care anymore about being right. So when we do, we initiate peace, experience re reconciliation, drawn, drawing the relationship back together. That doesn't mean you're, you know, right, with your spouse, obviously, there should be the fullness of restoration. But if you're thinking of your coworker, your neighbor, right, there are certain things, certain issues, right, that might keep you from not fully getting along. That doesn't mean you have to be best friends and buddies and hanging out all the time. You just want to eliminate any and all dissension because you have bigger vision. You want to be a peacemaker because you want to represent Christ well. Reconciliation will be elusive as long as being right is more important than being in the relationship. You see, peacemaking initiates the restoration of relationship. We're called to be initiators. Hebrews 12, 14 simply says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone. Every effort. Colossians 3, 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. This is an interesting scripture to me simply because of the word let. Right? It's not like focus on, try really hard. No, when we have Christ living within us, the Spirit ideally leading us, we will consistently want to go our own way. It's called pride. Well, God, I got this, right? I know how to navigate this. No, I'm, I'm right. I'm going to drive this point home to this person to persuade them. But no, it's a daily discipline, discipline to let the Spirit of God guide us. Because we don't make peace. We don't manufacture peace. We have the peace of Christ within us, and it's meant to be distributed to the world around us. So the daily challenge is to let the peace of Christ rule. So when we love God more than we love proving people wrong, the peace of Christ rules our relationships and our conversations. Think about what drives us. See, when we are, if it's our love for God, if we love him more than we love proving people wrong and putting them in their spot, the peace of Christ will rule in our relationships and our conversations. When we don't, there's consequence. Something else is ruling. What is it? Persuasion, Retaliation, we're making these things king in the circumstance. Revenge, competition, resentment. If you've been on Facebook or Twitter very long, you know how simple things, simple opinions can easily escalate, right? Not even like politics. It could be something so small. Somebody, for example, and, and those of you that are on social, not on social media, this will just be further affirmation that you stay off it, right? And you'd be like, really, that's a thing? Unfortunately, it's a thing called basic humanity that gone wrong. And so on Facebook, somebody could post something just totally general like, I don't like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Floodgates could be open. You might have 100 comments of people just railing against you. How could you? You're so un-American. Those are two things that go together. There's no disagreement, right? 
Like, it's just common knowledge that everybody should love. You're like, whoa, hold on, how did that happen? And so oftentimes, I feel like I've gotten better, but oftentimes I'm inclined to interject my own opinion if I'm all of a sudden passionate about something. So like this past week, you know, it was one of those opportunities that I didn't totally succeed in. But uh, LeBron James plays for the Cleveland Cavaliers, made a buzzer beater, right? Dramatic, you know, shot, won the game. And, and so whenever something like that happens, naturally on Facebook and other social media outlets, the debate is, who's the GOAT? The greatest of all time, right? Those of you that are non-sports, you're like, wow, that's a thing? Yeah, right. Okay. And so was it LeBron James or Michael Jordan? And so it's like, oh, I always have to hold back from this because I got strong opinions and I want to interject and I want to get passive aggressive and just comment or put somebody in their place and be like, I'm so sad to hear that you never watched basketball in the 90s or something very passive. I'll just say that and communicate my opinion that way. <laughs> it's embarrassing. The way things escalate Right, to the point of, wow, this started out as a small thing, but now it's a, a big thing, and this person's actually mad at me. Some people start deleting their friends over that. Well, it's like, oh man, I'm taking it too far. But anyway, we should move on. Ephesians chapter 2. <laughs> I just always try to think of the people that have never been a part of social media and how the, these phrases that we use, how they hear them. You deleted your friend. Wow, you're, you're a terrible person. You can delete friends. Anyway. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14 says, Now in Christ Jesus, you who, were, who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. This is our story. And God had in mind that this would be everybody's stories. Now in Christ Jesus, we were once far off. Well, how, how do we get near to God? It was his work, not ours. Christ not only made peace, he himself is our peace. And so when we pass peace to another, it's not just peace that we're passing on. It's the peace of Christ that one receives because God himself is the real peacemaker. So let me be clear. We cannot seek peace, make peace out of our own strength and competency. We can't. And it's humbling. We fail and hurt those around us. We're judgmental. We're selfish. We're good at that. But to truly pass peace on to others, to be peacemakers in this world, we must ask God to do something we cannot do on our own. And so we not only get to surprise other people with the way that we respond, we surprise ourselves. I didn't know I had it in me. I can't believe the words I said, how kind I actually was. That's because it's not me. It's me letting the Spirit rule my life, my heart. The one who has reconciled us to himself leads us in bringing reconciliation to the world. And he begins right where we already are. We don't have to go very far, right? We find God in peacemaking because we experience the author of peace, the one who entered into our story through the person of Jesus Christ, also known, by the way, as the Prince of Peace. And the reality, none of us were deserving. Our lives were reconciled to God because he decided that he would pursue us all the way to where we are, were in our darkness, our brokenness. I don't know about you, I'm so grateful to be in relationship with a God who doesn't look at me and assess my worthiness, my deservingness of his grace and peace before bringing peace into my life. He brings it, and he brings it to the world. And he calls us, the church, to represent him well. First Corinthians calls a vision, and this is my entire Easter message, was the calling that Easter would not end with us. We are called to be ministers of reconciliation. That's his vision for our lives. Foundational meaning of peace in scripture. Like if you look at Hebrew, you know, it'll mean, you know, shalom will mean one thing. You look in the Greek and the New Testament, peace will mean another thing. But if you were to kind of summarize the fullness of peace throughout all of scripture, what it means is this, the spiritual harmony brought about by an individual's restoration with God. Think about that. 
The spiritual harmony brought about by an individual's restoration with God. This is our challenge now. Do we really sincerely want that for everyone? Because some of us like to be mad at somebody else. We like for them to kind of be on the outside, to know that we're mad at them, to have animosity. But it's humbling to say, you know what? God's pursuing them, and he wants to use me to bring peace into their lives. See, when we practice peace, we point people to God. Every time we practice peace, we point people to God. My wife Emily and I were about five weeks away from bringing Levi, Stephen, into the world. We're ecstatic about that, and there were several reasons why we wanted to name him Levi. One, one of those reasons, though, is that his name means joined in harmony. In Hebrew, it means joined in harmony. And so I think about, you know, this baby boy, that my son that I haven't met yet, and my vision for his life is that ideally we would raise him up and that he would grow up and look around at the world and to want to initiate peacemaking relationships. And say, one day I can have a conversation with him, Levi, we are here to help bring wholeness to things that are broken, to, bring, to be restorers, to be reconciliators into the world. This is God's calling for our lives. Own your name, live your purpose. May the world be better because we initiate peace. We don't just hope nobody will rock our boat. We don't just keep chaos at arm's distance. We enter into those relationships because God is pursuing those people and he wants to use us. So today, if you're at odds with someone in your workplace, someone in your family, someone in your neighborhood, I want to encourage you to decide to no longer settle for toxic, dysfunctional, or even indifference being the norm. Decide to do everything in your power to make peace. This is what Christ did for us. He reconciled us to God. When we were not deserving of a relationship with him, he humbled himself, not for himself, but for us, the prideful ones. See, because of our sin, Scripture tells us we were literally enemies of God. Because when he sees us, he sees sin. We're his enemy. But through the person of Jesus Christ, he restored that relationship. Christ reconciled us because of his work on the cross. Our relationship with God is restored. And this restoration was meant for everyone. It's a challenge. It's inconvenient. It's not fun. But we are called to enter into the broken areas, the broken relationships all around us, I say, God, I need your help. I'm surrendering my agenda to you. Use me in this moment. Use me outside of my capacity and my competency to love like never before, knowing that you, you love this person more than I can even realize.